Good morning, everyone. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Thanks, everyone, for coming, and uh, especially to our witnesses, who we'll hear from shortly. For the purposes of this specific hearing, we're, we're going to pursue, uh, as we get our technology under control in terms of understanding when people sign in, we're going to do it by seniority, uh, but we will um, ultimately try to work towards uh, whoever appears uh, at the time of the gavel, uh, but we're, we're not there yet. So, um, so with my apologies for those who made it early, uh, hopefully you'll still be uh, in the rotation uh, and others won't jump in in front of you. But for today, as we figure out how, when we have a hybrid, how we can uh, make sure that we understand where the seniority is, I mean, where the in-time appearance is, uh, we're going to do this um, uh, for today's purposes by seniority. Um, given the state of the world in our own country, I felt it was paramount to use my first policy hearing as chairman of this Congress to examine democracy as a fundamental American value and how it drives our foreign policy. In every region of the world today, authoritarian governments are seizing more and more power, dismantling core democratic institutions and closing in on civil society and freedom of expression. Many emerging democracies are plagued by scandal, corruption, and citizen disaffection. From Turkey and Hungary to Venezuela to the Philippines, autocrats are systematically dismantling constitutional checks on their power. Unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic has helped accelerate some of their actions by providing an excuse to consolidate power and quash free press. Of course, we cannot seriously talk about democratic decline around the world without confronting the stress tests on our own democracy. The assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th was the culmination of coordinated misinformation fueled by a systematic undermining from the very highest office in the land of the foundational elements of our democracy, including the right to vote, a free press, and our institutions themselves. Tragically, the same pattern we're seeing in democratic free-falling countries. But I would offer that our strength as Americans is our commitment to strive for that more perfect union. We take seriously our responsibility to continually ensure that our citizens are equipped with the knowledge of their rights and responsibilities in a democratic society so that they can hold their leaders accountable. We ensure people have the right to vote and that our judiciary remains independent. And course correction when we must. History has proven that democracies are more peaceful, their people are more prosperous and more secure, and it is our national interest to champion these values. So with that in mind, as leaders around the world have publicly and privately questioned whether the United States can still talk about democratic promotion, I say we must. It is simply in our interest. And I remind those who I've talked to around the world who have challenged the proposition that uh, the reality is that our institutions withstood uh, the challenges that were presented to it, from its judiciary to the Congress uh, to um, uh, a, a free press and its vibrancy. All of these elements may have been tested, but they were stood the test. Our driving question of today's hearing is why the United States must support democracy around the world as a fundamental American value and the most effective tools we have to support democratic resilience and expansion. Last year, I published a report documenting the steep costs that the Trump presidency exacted on U.S. foreign policy and national security. 
interviews with current and former U.S. officials, foreign officials, national security experts, all affirm that President Trump's actions made it harder to effectively champion human rights and promote democracy abroad. And we largely ceded the moral ground on the global stage at a time when we needed it most to counter the authoritarian forces of Russia and China. Today, Beijing and Moscow are driving global authoritarian expansion through increasingly sophisticated digital authoritarian surveillance and control tools and simple old-fashioned arrests of peaceful protesters and the shutting down of independent media. The United States must counter their malign efforts with a worldwide campaign to promote democratic values. We must also lead a serious attack on the lifeblood of these autocrats, the kleptocratic ways in which they loot public coffers to sustain themselves and erode freedom globally. We must maintain consistent and continuous pressure on authoritarian governments to stop them from abusing the rights of their citizens and exporting disinformation and other tools of repression abroad. Tragically, we can look around the world and see countries that may have once had so much promise overtaken by military or self-interested autocrats. The recent coup in Burma represents a direct and pressing challenge to our aim of restoring values to the center of our foreign policy. Across the Middle East, we must not be silent in the face of human rights violations for fear of offending a security partner. Our partnerships are not blank checks. We are seeing the Egyptian government not only targeting democracy and human rights activists in Egypt, but also targeting the family members of U.S. citizens who criticize their policies. In Saudi Arabia, I'll continue to press for accountability for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. In Ethiopia, the path to credible elections in June has closed considerably. The ongoing conflict in Tigray with credible reports of mass atrocities and violence in other regions means millions of Ethiopian voters will be disenfranchised absent dramatic change. And to the east in Sudan, the, civil, uh, the civilian-led transitional government is facing serious economic and political headwinds. Let me end closer to our own borders. As we prepare to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Inter-American Democratic Charter in September, we have seen in the region a series of deeply flawed or fraudulent elections. Entrenched authoritarians have clung to power in Havana, Caracas, and Managua. After six days, excuse, six, I wish it was six days, six decades, Cuba remains firmly in the grasp of a dictatorship. And nowhere in our hemisphere has democratic deterioration produced greater human suffering than in Venezuela. Maduro's brutal criminal regime has unleashed a humanitarian crisis and has perpetrated crimes against humanity in order to silence dissent. We have an opportunity now to reassert the U.S. role in championing democracy and human rights around the globe. We do this because it is right and because it is in our interests. Our investments in democracy are our best hope for bolstering the stability and prosperity of our neighbors and far-off countries alike, and for keeping our sons and daughters out of war. To continue to champion democracy and human rights in foreign policy, we need to have a fuller sense of the challenges we face and how the United States can best rise to face them. And shortly, we will turn to our witnesses to get their perspectives. With that, I'd like to turn to the distinguished ranking member for his comments. Well, thank you very much. I, I concur that uh, it is appropriate that the first policy hearing we have in this Congress uh, is on the state of democracy around the world. Because after all, uh, when it comes to uh, foreign relations or the success and operation of a country, that democracy is, uh, is foundational to that. And uh, the United States remains the gold standard for democracy. 
Uh, yes, we, we do uh, uh, wind up having uh, disagreements and a little pushing and shoving as to how we execute democracy, but we have in place a uh, independent judiciary that uh, resolve those disputes, and uh, we then accept those and uh, move on and, uh, and execute the uh, democracy that the Founding Fathers gave us. And uh, while we have uh, been rightly focused on combating the coronavirus pandemic, another worldwide threat is taking shape, and that is a decline in democracies and democratic principles, uh, many of which that uh, you have referred to, uh, Mr. Chairman, in your opening remarks and I concur in those. Before COVID-19 broke out in Wuhan, China, democratic backsliding had already become a serious global concern. The ongoing pandemic has given opportunistic leaders another excuse to grab power and suppress their own citizens' fundamental freedoms and human rights. It's happening even in countries who had once struggled to actually reach a level of democracy. And uh, I don't think we have to look very far right in our own neighborhood. Venezuela went from a country that was uh, as uh, much uh, as anything a democracy into what it is today, which is uh, anything but. And one of the disheartening things is how quickly something like that can happen uh, in very short order uh, with just one or two leaders who uh, are not committed to uh, the rule of law and democracy. Rather than keep its promise, the uh, Chinese Communist Party is doing everything it can to erase Hong Kong's uh, autonomy. One of the largest threats to rights and freedoms is Beijing's so-called national security law, which has been used to arrest and instill fear among teachers, journalists, and activists in Hong Kong. While COVID-19 infected the world, the restrictions used to fight the virus were also used to fight democracy, including uh, by limiting protests, delaying elections, and implementing oppressive state-sponsored uh, censorship. Just this week, 47 Hong Kong uh, democracy activists were charged under the new national security law. In Africa, countries uh, like uh, the Gambia, Sudan, and Ethiopia have seen important moments of democratic progress in recent years. However, the pandemic and the political, economic, and security realities have put these democratic transitions under tremendous strain and jeopardize the progress. At the same time, we've seen countries like uh, Tanzania, uh, Uganda, and Zimbabwe further backslide in the face of increasingly authoritarian and corrupt behavior by their leaders. Despite these challenges, democracy remains in high demand amongst most Africans. After enjoying some democratic progress since 2011, Burma's recent military coup has set the country back, dramatically back. Courageous citizens protesting this authoritarian regime have been met with violence, leading to scores of death and injuries of innocent protesters. Hundreds have been arrested, including the father of one of our witnesses today. The military, in an effort to quash all dissent and momentum for protests, also weaponized access to the Internet to avoid and block communication between those who want to communicate uh, in a protest fashion. While news of democratic backsliding around the globe can be disheartening, it is a reminder that we must fight for and defend democracy and democratic values. The United States needs to continue to lead the world in supporting democracy and rule of law. The United States has robust programs to promote democracy, the rule of law, and respect for human rights across the globe. We support civil societies, 
organizations in election preparation, in improving media literacy, and increasing women's participation in the political process. This work continues despite significant obstacles. Authoritarian governments in places such as Russia and China continue to enforce uh, draconian anti-NGO laws, which limit our ability to support civil society. Even as we remain focused on our domestic response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we must not turn a blind eye to democratic backsliding across the globe. I look forward to hearing from the witnesses today on how the United States can continue to lead on promoting democracy and supporting civil society actors around the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, let us turn to our first panel. It's my honor to welcome Secretary Madeleine Albright. Uh, virtually, Secretary Albright served as our first female Secretary of State, working as the nation's top diplomat from 1997 to 2001. Prior to that, she served as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Born in Prague, Secretary Albright and her family fled the Nazis and eventually settled in the United States. Uh, she is uh, one of the most uh, significant voices in the promotion of democracy in our country. We're fortunate to be hearing from Secretary Albright, giving her decades of public service at the highest levels of our government and her deep personal experience with the democratic struggle as well. Um, we are also joined by another formidable diplomat, Ambassador Paula Dobriansky. Uh, Ambassador Dobriansky served as Under Secretary of State for Global Affairs from 2001 to 2009 and as the President's envoy to Northern Ireland in 2007. Welcome, Ambassador. With that, we'll turn to uh, Secretary Albright first, and then we'll go to Ambassador Dobriansky. Yeah. Uh, Chairman Mendez and uh, Ranking Member Reich, thank you so much, and members of the committee. I am really delighted that. Uh, you asked me to share my thoughts on the state of democracy, and I so applaud the fact that you are making this your first hearing. Um, as you mentioned, Chairman Menendez, uh, it is a topic that I approach through the prism of my own experience, having come to this country uh, in 1948 after my family fled both communism and fascism um, in Europe. And uh, I have always been a grateful American, and I was taught by my father to appreciate both the fragility of democracy and its resilience. In the past quarter century, I have testified before this committee on many occasions, and I've not always agreed with every senator on every topic, but I don't ever recall having had a quarrel about the importance of democracy. So today, in the interest of time, I'll devote my remarks less to the widely reported symptoms of freedom's decline than to the question of what we can and should do about it. And so to that end, I will stress three points. First, the United States must lead. Many countries can and do help, but no other nation has both the historic identification with liberty and the geographic reach to inspire and strengthen democratic institutions in every region. If America is not out front, others will take our place, either despots who rule with an iron fist or extremists who acknowledge no rules at all. And this would leave the world with a choice between repression and chaos. And we owe our children a better alternative than that. My second point follows directly from the first. America must set the rice example. People across the globe won't follow us if they don't believe us. And they won't believe us if we fail to match our words with actions. I won't dwell on the events of January 6th, but you can be sure that our rivals will not soon let the world forget the spectacle of American democracy under siege from within. 
And just recently in Burma, the military launched a coup because its leaders refused to accept the results of a democratic election. Sound familiar? The truth is that we have to be able to understand uh, what is going on in every single way. Uh, and the truth is that the autocrats in many countries have echoed the words of our past president when attacking their legitimate opposition, their courts, the independent press, and natural, uh, national legislatures. Meanwhile, here at home, efforts are underway in many states to chip away at the right of, to vote, the very cornerstone of freedom. And to be clear, just as it is fraudulent for people to vote illegally, so it is fraudulent to deny citizens the best possible chance to cast their ballots within the law. And when it comes to holding fair elections, there is no comparison. Denial of the franchise, not deception at the polls, is by far the bigger problem. Uh, and I do think, as I make my third point, is that building and sustaining democracy should be a first principle, not an afterthought in US foreign and national security policy. And the reason should be clear to all of us. And let's look around the world. And some of both of you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, have looked at some of this from South Asia to Central Europe and from the Middle East to parts of Africa and Latin America, democracy is steadily losing ground. Not since the Cold War have we seen a broader or more ominous threat to human freedom. So what should we do? Fall apart and retreat or come together in defense of our core beliefs? When I was Secretary of State, I helped launch what we call the Community of Democracies, an effort that continued under the leadership of Ambassador Dobryansky in the Bush administration, and I'm delighted to be able to testify along with her. We were committed to the idea that democratic governments should assist each other in creating jobs, improving services, and countering threats. The time is right to revive that sense of solidarity. For America, that means helping to strengthen liberty's cause through the employment of every available foreign policy tool, including aid, trade, sanctions, bilateral and multilateral diplomacy, and partnerships with advocacy groups and the private sector. We must also apply the lessons we have already learned about the need for patience, inclusivity, a holistic approach to how we go forward. And I think that that is a very important aspect um, in terms of looking uh, at the, what lessons we have learned uh, and that they have to be tailored to the individual circumstances of the countries involved. The Bipartisan National Endowment for Democracy and its four core institutes, NDI, IRI, SIPE, and the Solidarity Center are rich sources of wisdom on all of these points. And it's been my honor to be associated with these institutions since they were founded by President Reagan and to have served as chairman of NDI since 2001. And I know they stand ready to work with this committee as it reviews and strengthens democracy programs. Now, some will tell you that a democracy-centered foreign policy reflects a kind of starry-eyed idealism and that the only way to protect our interests is through hard-headed realism. And is there some truth in that? Yes, I won't deny it. But in the vast majority of cases, support for democracy serves both our interests and our ideals. History has shown us that free countries make better neighbors, more reliable friends, and the only allies we can count on consistently. 
And that is why backing for democratic values must be the centerpiece of any strategy to create a more secure, stable, healthy, and prosperous global environment, a kind of setting in which Americans can thrive. A little more than a century ago, a US president asked our armed forces to cross the ocean to make the world safe for democracy. Today, we must support democracy to make the world safe. And we should do so with confidence. Despite recent setbacks, we know that democracy is resilient. And so too is the United States. Our economy is one of the strongest and most innovative in the world because we have a system of government that supports the rule of law and protects the right of individuals. We know as well that even now, no words speak more powerfully to the aspirations of all people than that singular pledge of liberty and justice for all. As President Biden wrote in the Interim National Security Strategic Guidance issued last week, and I quote, we must prove that our model isn't a relic of history. It's the single best way to realize the promise of the future. And Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, there is much more I could say, but time is precious. And so I really look forward to any of the questions you might have. Thank you so much for asking me to participate in this important hearing. Thank you, Madam Secretary. We look forward to that opportunity to ask questions. Ambassador Dobryansky. Thank you, uh, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Reich, and other distinguished members of this committee. Good morning. And thank you also for inviting me to appear before you today to discuss a topic of great importance to the United States and to our allies. This hearing is timely and welcome, and I'm also very delighted to share this panel with Secretary Albright. I will submit my full testimony, but I'm going to try to abbreviate it to stay within the time frame. Great power competition defines the current international environment and shapes the prospects for democracy development. China and Russia are seeking to diminish American power and influence, fragment our alliances, and undermine other national security interests of the United States. We can expect strategic competition with Beijing and Moscow to continue and even intensify. How to deal with these threats should be a central focus of U.S. foreign policy going forward. Defending democracy and universal freedoms must be a key element of U.S. strategy. Speaking at the Munich Security Conference in 2007, Russian President Vladimir Putin warned of a new era of confrontation with the West, asserting Russia's prerogative to carry out an independent foreign policy. He asserted that Western values are not Russian values. And despite over two decades of efforts to incentivize China to be a responsible stakeholder, its leaders continue to pursue aggressive regional and global behavior, to violate international trade norms and standards, and to commit egregious human rights abuses against its own people, including Tibetans and Uyghurs. As I speak today, Beijing is also tearing up the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration and stripping away Hong Kong's democracy. China and Russia have become increasingly aligned, even though they have not established a formal alliance. As Steve Hadley and I wrote in the Atlantic Council Insights Memo, Russian and Chinese leaders share an authoritarian ideological orientation and perceive American power and democratic values as a threat. They are working together more closely to undermine American influence and discredit our political, economic, and social system. In Latin America, Africa, Europe, and the Middle East, 
China and Russia have used proxies, economic instruments, disinformation campaigns, election interference, corrupt relationships, energy resources, and soft power to subvert both fragile and well-established democratic governments and thus to foment instability. They have engaged Iran, Venezuela, and Cuba in these anti-American efforts. Venezuela is a flashpoint for Chinese and Russian investment and malign influence. Both nations have invested billions into Venezuela, taking advantage of its economic and political weakness, its vast petroleum resources, and their close relationships with the corrupt Maduro regime. Russian arms manufacturers sold $4 billion worth of weapons to Venezuela over the last 10 years. And China has invested some $67 billion in Venezuela since 2007. These instruments have propped up an illegitimate government and have undermined prospects for democracy. But it doesn't stop there. Russian disinformation and election interference campaigns have targeted Colombia. In late 2019, Colombian Vice President Marta Lucia Ramirez accused Russia and its allies in Venezuela of fomenting protests through social media campaigns. A few months later, New York Times journalist Lara Jakes reported on a State Department assessment that described Russian-linked social media accounts as conducting an influence campaign. That campaign has been underway not only in Colombia, but elsewhere in South America. By undermining democracies in the region, Russia and China seek to create instability in our backyard. Russia and China have expanded investments in Africa as well. In 2003, annual Chinese direct investment in Africa was just 70 5 million. But by 2009, it reached 2.7 billion. Through its One Belt, One Road initiative, China is offering fragile democracies in Africa new rail lines, highways, and other infrastructure projects. African nations are finding that these projects have left them with massive debt and a lack of control. Russia is also increasing its investments in Africa, too, especially its military presence. It's striving to create a Red Sea naval logistics facility in Sudan. Russia and China are waging a fierce battle against democracy through disinformation campaigns, cyber intrusions, investment, and attacks on Western values. China's substantial economic, financial, and technological leverage also constrains how countries can respond to this, whether in Europe, the Middle East, or elsewhere. So defining democracy and promoting democracy and human rights, defending and promoting democracy and human rights abroad is not only a moral imperative, but also a sound strategic approach. Let me just briefly respond to what are the most effective means of achieving this core objective. A strong military and economic foundation at home, working closely with our allies and other nations to advance a coherent, compelling moral narrative about democracy and Western values, Overcoming others' complacency to secure their support in challenging the falsehoods put forth by Moscow and Beijing. Providing fragile democracies with humanitarian assistance through USAID, as well as democracy support through such institutions as the NED family, the Development Finance Corporation, and Exim Bank. Imposing targeted sanctions against specific activities, such as Russia's energy investments in Venezuela. Sanctioning government officials or others responsible for corruption and human rights violations through the Global Magnitsky Act of 2016. I have strongly advocated for the use of Global Magnitsky against Cuban officials and their accomplishments who have committed gross violations of human rights, including modern-day slavery by trafficking of doctors, worked to destabilize democracies in the Western Hemisphere and collaborated with China, Iran, and Russia. And significantly, in January of this year, 
Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets designated the Cuban Ministry of Interior and the first Cuban official, the Minister of Interior, Lazaro Alberto Alvarez Casas, for serious human rights abuses against Jose Daniel Farrar, who's held in a Ministry of Interior-controlled prison. So in conclusion, let me say Ronald Reagan advanced a foreign policy predicated on U.S. global leadership, military strength, and moral clarity. We bolstered our ties to democratic allies, challenged regimes hostile to our interests and values, and promoted political and economic freedom abroad. This strategic approach advanced both U.S. interests and global freedom. It was successful then and can be successful today. Thank you. Well, thank you very, very much to both of you for your testimony. Let, let me start a series of uh, five-minute uh, uh, rounds here for this first panel. Uh, Secretary Albright, uh, China is one of our biggest challenges in the context of uh, democracy and human rights. What do you think are some of the most effective ways for the United States to push back on China's efforts to erase the tenets, principles, and international organizations that have enabled so much human progress? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I do think that there's no question that China is our biggest problem. Um, and that they are out there uh, hustling in every single way. And I have uh, made very clear that um, with the Belt and Road uh, policies that they are undertaking, the Chinese must be getting very fat because the belt keeps getting larger and larger. And some of it does have to do with the fact that we have been absent and they are filling a vacuum. And so we need to make clear um, that we need to be back and really do need to make clear in so many ways that we are a leader in restoring and building democracy in other countries. I do think that we have to speak out uh, very clearly about what the problems are with the Chinese behavior um, and that it is a complex relationship. One has to say that they are an adversary. There's no question militarily in terms of the kinds of things that they're doing in the South and East China Sea and threatening Taiwan. Uh, they are a competitor uh, in so many different ways in undermining um, various rules of technology and uh, not stealing international uh, intellectual property. And they are competing with us in so many ways. But there are issues on which we have to cooperate. And I was very interested in reading this morning that there already is a way for there to be cooperation on dealing through the G20 with Secretary Yellen and a Chinese representative from the Central Bank on some of the economic aspects of uh, climate change. So it's a complex relationship, but the most important thing we have to do is tell the truth and speak out when what they have done in Hong Kong is unacceptable. I was there when we did the turnover, um, and the bottom line is this is not the way that it was supposed to work out, and we have to push back on that, and I do think that some of our measures have to do with imposing a series of sanctions on those who are responsible. And we also have, make, have to make absolutely clear that we will not waver on our um, relationship with Taiwan. I was very interested that President Biden in his interim national security guidance made very clear uh, that we would continue to work with Taiwan uh, and to be able to push back on whatever threat there is to them. But it is the most difficult, complicated relationship we have with China. We have to pay very close attention. We have to use the tools we have, 
which are the military, the diplomatic, and the economic through sanctions. Thank you. Last week, Freedom House published their annual Freedom in the World report. They called it Democracy Under Siege. It highlights that 2020 was the 15th consecutive year of decline in global freedom and the corrosive uh, efforts of China and Russia to curtail freedom. Other disturbing trends include the rise of digital authoritarianism, the exploitation of COVID-19 by liberal leaders to close space for civil society, journalists, and human rights defenders. So uh, what would you both say is the uh, main drivers for this decline? And um, is there a difference between the threat uh, to established democracies compared to threats to developing or fragile democracies. We'll start with you, uh, Ambassador Dobryansky. Thank you for the question. I would uh, start with a number of factors that have, I think, contributed. As my opening remarks indicated, I think the activism of both China and Russia, both have worked extremely hard to undermine Western values, and they have stated it very openly and very directly. And this is not new. That's why I cited, starting with Putin's remarks in the Munich Security Conference of 2007 and moving forward. Both have tried to justify the kind of violations of human rights and the kind of suppression that exists both in Russia and China and deflect what is happening there elsewhere. Secondly, it is very much geared against the United States seeking to diminish our power, no less, and our influence, no less the very values that we stand for, and also our alliances, uh, 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 and fragment our alliances. Um, I would start with that. And then secondly, I think we've been complacent. I think over the last decades and these 15 years, when you look at it, there has been a kind of complacency where we have almost taken for granted that we are strong, that our values have permeated and have, have uh, been taken on uh, across the globe. And I think it is a wake-up call that we have to work harder at this. Um, and then I would also add that in the mix that you do have a number of rogue regimes that have also added on to Russia and China and the greater closeness of their relationship, which has really come about more in recent years, militarily, economically, and politically. And that, too, with uh, the uh, assistance of Iran, Cuba, among others, Venezuela, Nicaragua, that also has furthered that case. Finally, because you mentioned the digital Piece, I think that we're also seeing the advent of technologies and the degree to which technologies have also the changed the way in which we need to advocate for democracy. That there are new instruments that are in fact being used and which we have to be more vigilant, aggressive, and actually redesign our advocacy for democracy and our defense of democracy. And I think that's an area where we have come up short, we've been under attack, and we need to be out in front. Thank you. Senator Risch. Thank you. Um, Secretary Albright, let me start with you on a, a question I would have about 
this subject uh, generally, uh, and that is uh, your uh, proposition about the community of uh, democracies. Um, you know, it, it amazes me uh, that there are countries who, that claim to be democracies uh, that uh, have uh, things in place that, are, that aren't democratic at all. They think holding an election is all you need to do to claim yourself a democracy, where we know that a democracy, the, the basis of a democracy is the power uh, is in the hands of the people and not in the hands of a regime that can hang on through military might or what have you. And how, how, do you, um, how do you handle that? How, how do you underscore the fact that simply because you have an election doesn't mean you're a democracy? I think probably the best example of that, and there's a number of countries around the world that do this, but Iran has, uh, has an election. And so uh, why aren't they a democracy? Well, they aren't a democracy because a, a committee gets together and decides who can run and who can't run. And that way, they, uh, the, the, those that are in charge, uh, a regime holds power by holding an election and then claiming it's a democracy. How do you push back on that? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? What are the arguments on that? Well, thank you very much for asking that. And let me say, <clears throat> when we started the community of democracies, one of the whole problems, <clears throat> excuse me, was uh, whom do you invite? Uh, right. You know, exactly as you say, not only some um, that were doing the opposite kind of things than democracies, but those that had very fragile democracies that weren't really working. And so that has been the problem with the community of democracies. And as people think about how to have a democracy summit, one has to kind of think about who do, whom do you invite and who are the people who which are the countries that need to be uh, supported with nascent democracies and those that need help when there are fragile democracies there are a number of different ways of of dividing all that up i do think uh, the question of elections is always interesting because uh, the thing that i've always said is elections are necessary but not sufficient obviously they are a beginning but there is a requirement for a set of institutional structures that go with them that establish a rule of law that is absolutely essential that is able to deal with some of the problems of corruption in various democracies that is also able um, to deal with how people behave with each other the establishment of a civil society that really operates um, and how democracy has to deliver I think that's one of the problems. There are always these discussions about how whether economic uh, and, and economic policy is also part of a democracy building policy. And I have said yes, because people want to vote and eat. Um, and therefore, there has to be a way that some of the economic divisions that have been created are not exacerbated by those who make them worse, um, but are in some ways there is a, a way of dealing with what used to be called the social contract um, and that people are in fact treated fairly, that the state has a responsibility towards them and that they have a responsibility towards the state. But it is a very difficult issue and I'm very glad that you all are considering this, is how, how do you decide what is a democracy? And the truth is that a democracy is always a journey. That is part of it and we can never think that it's done. Uh, and there is, uh, we have just shown the problems that we as the world's oldest democracy have had. We see the problems in India, which is the world's largest democracy, um, and that there has to be some way to determine which 
what are the tools that we use along with our partners in trying to strengthen uh, new democracies, how we deal with fragile democracies and how we don't let them be taken advantage of by, uh, as has been mentioned, that mm -hmm. Ambassador Dobryansky did, the issues of technology, which are under, technology is really an incredible gift, but it also has become a tool for those who want to undermine democracy. So you have set out a very large goal for all of us, um, Congress and the executive branch and those of us that are out of government in terms of the various parts that we can work with the National Endowment of Democracy, our various partners in that in order to push back against those who think they have a democracy when they have an election or when they decide not to live up to their constitutions by saying, yes, we'll just extend the terms that we have, which are part of the questions that are going on in Africa and at this particular time. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I wonder, this is the foundational question, really, what we're talking about here. I wonder if you'd uh, give Ambassador Dobryansky an opportunity to respond to that. I know my time is up, but... Uh, Please go ahead. Th thank you. And I'll, I'll try to give a very brief answer. Um, uh, Secretary Albright is correct in saying and the, thinking about the community of democracies is a challenge. It was a challenge in determining who's at the table. And my answer to you would be that it wasn't perfect. <laughs> and we erred on the side, quite frankly, of looking at those democracies that were solid, those democracies that were fragile, and by putting them at the table, it would actually be in our interest and maybe in their interest in doing so. And then uh, excluding those that we felt absolutely should not be at the table. And quite frankly, I will say to you that one of the toughest decisions was actually dealing with who was represented from the Middle East. And I remember quite well because when I was undersecretary and we held the first uh, Community of Democracies meeting, by the way, it happened to be in uh, South Korea. But in a later meeting, uh, I remember that we had a lot of challenges uh, because of also evolution of democracy. As the secretary said, democracy is, and the evolution of democracy is not linear. And you're going to experience challenges. So even though you have a certain group at the table, then it may not be the same group as you go on. But I'd end on this note. There was another component to this that I think was also important, which we advocated for very strongly, that you not only have country representation, but you also have the representation of the NGOs. And bluntly speaking, mm -hmm. some of the countries were very resistant to that being the case, but we persevered and we ensured that NGOs were also at the table, so there was a transparent, open discussion. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Senator Cardin, I understand, is with us virtually. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and let me thank uh, both of our witnesses. There's no question that democracy is a journey, uh, and there's no question that globally we're seeing a significant decline in democracies uh, and the, how democratic our so-called democratic states are. So it's clearly a critically important point for the United States' future and security uh, to strengthen and preserve democracies, starting at home, but globally. So as we look at how we go about doing it, uh, I couldn't agree more with our witnesses that the U.S. must be in the leadership, uh, and we must devote the resources. That means we have to devote the uh, resources in, in our missions and diplomacy, our, our foreign assistance, all of the above 
and I want to just point to one area of grave concern, and that is we've seen not only a decline of democracy globally, but we've seen a rise of corruption globally. And every country has corruption, but in autocratic states, generally the corrupt system finances the uh, autocratic policies and the violations of human rights and the ability to, to maintain power in the country. So let us talk about what we can do to strengthen our anti-corruption efforts. Uh, first, let me talk a little bit about foreign aid and let's talk about this because we've used foreign assistance to try to strengthen uh, good governance in countries. And yet we've had limited success. I point to Central America, which is a country that's had uh, significant problems of, of corruption or Ukraine. Uh, is there a better way that we can use our foreign aid? Should it be larger? Should it be more focused in order to deal with the institutions that are important to preserve democracy and to fight corruption? Both of you have mentioned the use of sanctions, something that I strongly support. Uh, sanctions have worked. Look at all the fuss over Dan Gertler's attempt to get an exception from the sanctions and how significant it was uh, that uh, President Biden reversed that particular decision or look at the topic in the first uh, summit meeting between uh, President Putin and President Trump. Uh, the Magnitsky sanctions clearly were brought up. They're working and I, we strongly support that and the Senator Wicker and I have introduced legislation to reauthorize and make permanent the global Magnitsky statute here in the United States. Uh, so we, we can clearly use sanctions more effectively. But I just really want to mention one other tool that Senator Young and I are working on, and that is to use the model of trafficking in persons where we have transparency in what every country is doing to fight modern day slavery, to use a similar method to evaluate how well countries are doing in fighting corruption, and then using that as our guide for our bilateral relations. So I'd just like to give both of our witnesses an opportunity, if they could, to respond at how important is it for us to fight corruption and how effective have we been in our efforts to uh, rid the financial support of autocratic governments uh, through the use of a corrupt system? Um, Senator, if I might, I think that um, it is, corruption is the cancer of democracy. Uh, and I think it is something that has to be worked on very actively. I think your last point about using some of the um, legal methods that we have is very important and look at other models. I think that there are several things that can be done better, but this is always disputable, whether some of our assistance needs to be conditioned on a series of things that have to happen uh, specifically, uh, and whether there really is a way to measure whether those conditions are being met. Uh, and one of the th whole aspects of what um, the, uh, for instance, NDI works on a lot is to establish uh, institutions with the importance of the rule of law and make sure that it's really carried out. Uh, but that needs really help in terms of, uh, I hate to say this, but the threats of the sanctions. Sanctions are a way, I think, to uh, individualize more uh, what um, the, the, the various steps that have to be taken and to really make clear that those kind of targeted sanctions uh, on those that are the, the, the villains in this literally, uh, and then also help the, the uh, legal government to deal with them itself through their legal systems. But I do think that 
we are not going to be able to find ourselves into a positive place in supporting democracy uh, everywhere if we don't recognize that corruption is the cancer uh, that we are dealing with that has to be eliminated through the steps that um, I've outlined and uh, Paula has also. Thank you. Uh, Senator Cardin, uh, corruption certainly does tear at the very fiber of democracy. It is the cancer, as Secretary Albright said. I, the three propositions you put forward, I agree with. First, I do think that foreign aid uh, should be uh, allocated uh, towards this purpose in strengthening rule of law and judicial proce processes in order to ensure that corruption is stemmed. Um, also, you mentioned the trafficking in persons model. I happened, as you may recall, been the Undersecretary of State when the first Trafficking in Persons Office actually was established at the State Department. I know that model well, and I think you're right in, in, in putting that forward as, as food for thought here. It has been a very effective one in dealing with trafficked victims and stemming the tide there, although it's still a human rights abuse in many countries. And then I want to go to sanctions. I believe firmly in the effective deployment of sanctions and particularly targeted sanctions. And I don't know if you heard, but in my opening remarks, I particularly focused on Global Magnitsky, how effective it has been. And I was delighted to see that Global Magnitsky was deployed for the first time ever, in fact, against Cuba and identifying the Cuban Minister of Interior and for the kind of human rights abuses that he has presided over, particularly with regard to Jose Daniel Ferrar. But also, I've advocated for putting corruption into Global Magnitsky, because it's not just about human rights abuses, it is also about corruption. And that we have seen certainly with the trafficked uh, uh, Cuban doctors, uh, 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 which relates to human rights abuses and outright corruption. So. I think, uh, Senator, what you have said is exactly right, and that's what we should be doing. Let me just thank both the witnesses. I, I did hear your opening statement. I've been listening to it. Uh, but let me just point out that the U.S. global Magnitsky law does apply uh, to corruption. Unfortunately, the European version is not as strong, and it's something we should be working on. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and thank you to both of the witnesses in this panel, uh, most instructive. Um, uh, we have seen the retreat uh, of freedom in numerous countries around the world, and, uh, and, and you have both described the uh, malevolent effort on the part of Russia and China in, in pushing their uh, agenda. Why are we failing why are we less successful? We're the largest economy in the world. We, we spend massive amounts on our military, on our soft power, uh, and yet we are, uh, we are seeing the retreat of, of that which uh, is essential to our freedom and to our prosperity and, and to the well-being of people throughout the world. Uh, if you had to help, help us understand what we're not doing right and what we need to do differently, what might that be? And, and let me start with uh, uh, Secretary Albright and then Ambassador Dobritsky. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Senator Romney. I, I think that it is a basic question as to why we are failing. I do think that in some ways uh, we were taking 
too much for granted at the end of the Cold War, when all of a sudden there was this great spurt of democracy and countries wanted to figure out how to have democratic governments. They didn't have the infrastructure for it. Um, and it's interesting because President Reagan, when he spoke in Parliament, he said that the problem was that uh, we were not very good at defining democracy versus communism. And I think that's true. That's why we he established the National Endowment and the various institutes under it. And uh, we were doing very well, frankly, immediately after the Cold War. And I think, uh, and I keep asking myself the question of then what happened? And I think that we took for granted in many ways that countries would automatically understand the benefits of democracy and didn't fully understand that there were still malevolent forces within the countries that were going to undermine it and that the various economic divisions were then there set out for demagogic leaders to exacerbate. Uh, I also think that uh, we have been somewhat naive about the methods that the, China, the Russians specifically were dealing with a former KGB officer. Putin knows how to use a variety of tactics to undermine other countries and is using the new technology um, in, in ways that uh, we have not developed a good enough defense system. And so I do think that one of the things that's going to have to happen, and from my sense is that as I read some of the Biden material, they are aware of the kind of undermining that is being done through cyber and uh, misinformation and a different a way that technology is being used and the Chinese and the others are doing it. And so I think that having this kind of a hearing and having really the sense that we have, one, not paid enough attention, we have been AWOL, two, that in fact, we have not used our, quote, public diplomacy tools well enough uh, in order to counter a lot of what is going on and then really have more defensive ways of dealing with the uh, cyber attacks and things that have been going on and understanding that there are an awful lot of holes in the way that we are uh, responding to this new threat. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Senator, thank you for the question. I would use the term which I used before in response to the chairman's first question, which is complacency. I believe that we have been very complacent about what we are about. And when I look past, and certainly uh, post-Cold uh, War to the present time, we have not been engaged in advocating, strongly advocating for our values and what we, we are about. So complacency, I think, has been uh, uh, problematic. But combined with the fact that we have not adjusted to the new kind of ideological warfare, I remember that you, years back, had identified Russia as our geopolitical foe. And absolutely, we have to adapt to the kinds of instruments that are being used to undermine uh, not just our values, values and human freedoms at large. There is this kind of effort that's taking place, as my statement uh, just started off with, the, the great power competition, which is geared specifically to undermining not just U.S. power, fragment our alliances, but in fact to stem the tide of uh, democracy development. So complacency has to be addressed. Uh, a, an awareness of the kinds of new instruments that we should be using uh, to advance democracy. And I would also add in this a moral narrative, 
And the moral narrative is truly important and not just us. It has to be with our allies, our our partners, those who subscribe to democratic, democratic values to understand that there is this kind of ideological challenge and battle of ideas. And finally, I would just say, which I think is the essence of this hearing, which I welcome very much today, and that is that democracy needs to be a core element of U.S. foreign policy and integrated at the front end, as has been said many times here uh, this morning, not at the back end. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Coons. Um, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, I think it is a great signal um, that we are doing um, this hearing on democracy uh, early in this Congress and that the message that you've sent with your opening statements, with your engagement, uh, is of coming together around this important and urgent work uh, of defending democracy. We've got two great witnesses on our first panel Uh, And to hear the questions that have been asked about Venezuela, about Cuba, about Sudan, about Ethiopia, about countries around the world where democracy is on its back foot and where authoritarian forces like the regimes in China and Russia um, and some of their partners in Venezuela and in Iran and Cuba are on the march, um, it gives me a sense of encouragement that we are having this uh, bipartisan and purposeful conversation at this critical moment uh, in the arc of democracy in, in human history. Um, So if I could, um, to Madam Secretary, Secretary Albright, your opening was uh, just tremendous and inspiring. I was texting um, two of my kids who are college students and said, if you can find this right now, you should watch it. It's more important than anything you're learning in class. And to Undersecretary Dobriansky, thank you as well uh, for your voice and your service and for your engagement. Um, I don't think that our uh, toolkit has kept up with the emerging threats to democracy and in particular, in particular, both the manipulation of technology uh, by authoritarian regimes. Um, the chairman put out a very powerful uh, report about digital authoritarianism and the ways in which China is using um, the, the tools uh, in the digital age. But I also don't think we've matched it with good old-fashioned engagement, outreach, and investment. Uh, the Development Finance Corporation uh, is an attempt Um, in a small way at answering the Belt and Road Initiative. The Millennium Challenge Corporation is an attempt at continuing to engage in development uh, in fragile states uh, where we're trying to provide support. But I think we are underfunding democracy and governance, and I think we are underutilizing those tools. As the uh, chairman in this Congress of the Appropriations Subcommittee that will help give some resources and some lift to these initiatives, uh, I'd welcome your thoughts, Madam Secretary, Madam Undersecretary, um, on how we can strengthen our toolkits so that those countries that are fragile and that are backsliding, that want to choose to come our way, have got both the means and the ability to do so before civil space closes irreparably and before they end up captured in the debt trap diplomacy of the Belt and Road Initiative irreversibly. Um, Madam Secretary, if I could first to you. Well, well, thank you very much. And I do think that part of the problem has been um, is that there is a movement uh, on the other side. There is kind of rising nationalism in a number of different countries, which is interpreted uh, in many ways in uh, creating what have been now called illiberal democracies. Hungary is a perfect example of that, where Orban, who used to be one of our favorite dissidents, all of a sudden decided that he was going to use the problem of immigrants or um, ethnic groups within Hungary 
to try to make nationalism greater and then pushing back on democracy in every way. By the way, uh, one of the books I wrote was called Fascism, A Warning. Uh, and I do think that it is, uh, it was a warning in terms of the fact that the basic divisions that are in society are then exacerbated by those leaders who want to make them worse, identify with one group at the expense of another that then become the scapegoats. So I think we need to look generally at what is going on um, in countries. I also do think that we need to make our tools stronger or sharper, so to speak. Um, I think that uh, I, I will obviously speak very strongly about the importance of funding the National Endowment for Democracy uh, various groupings, and we work together. By the way, one of the things that I always enjoy as chairman of NDI is to work with Senator Sullivan and uh, IRI and do things together to show that uh, working in bipartisanship is very important, that there are uh, something that's the basic element of democracy is respect for an opposition party. So us working together and getting funding um, is, I, I can't begin to stress how important uh, it is. And I will be very happy if I'm welcomed specifically to talk about the budgets because I do think they make a difference. I also think that we have not done enough recently to really look at um, how information can be uh, exchanged, not propaganda, but information, um, and that uh, the various instruments that are part of that have been either underfunded or have been malignly used in different ways. Um, and we are dealing with a very different kind of system, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, that the Russians are able to use from their Communist Party experience. Um, and I do think that what we have to figure out um, is how to put our money in a way where it really does make a difference. And the aid programs, and you mentioned the MCC um, and a number of ways, and you have been instrumental in, in helping the U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, by the way, Paula and I were on this together about how to deal with fragile states because they then become petri dishes for those who hate us and are very dangerous. And I Th think we need to keep examining how to do that. Thank you, Madam Secretary. If I might, just a closing point that um, Senator Cornyn and I have a bipartisan bill about strengthening civics education within the United States. In recent surveys, there's as many young Americans who support and believe in socialism as believe in capitalism. There's profound doubts about democracy, particularly after the events of January 6th and the disinformation about the value and legitimacy of free and open societies that we've lived through. Uh, it's my hope that on a bipartisan basis we can move a renewed investment in civics education to strengthen our own democracies. You've both spoken to. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, um, I see my time has expired, and I appreciate your indulgence. Absolutely. Uh, Mr. Chairman, may I give a third? If you, if you can I'll be, be very I'm sorry, fast. Uh, I just want to say, I'm, Senate, a little constricted, I'm going to be very fast. The Senate, Senator, you're correct on the toolkit. We definitely need to ramp up our toolkit. Secondly, you mentioned the Development Finance Corporation and also XM Bank and, and or MCC. Both are play an important role. And I did want to add in XM Bank. And the reason why, I happen to chair the Chairman's Council on China Competition at XM Bank. And quite frankly, our businesses 
are not on a level playing field, quite frankly, with what the Chinese are doing. So let me just say it's an important question, and it's one that has to be dealt with, the toolkit. Thank you very much. I'm sure as the chairman of the subcommittee, he will have, uh, Senator Kunz will have opportunities to further involve himself in getting the expertise he wants to hear from. But thank you for the question. With that, I understand that Senator Johnson is with us virtually. Senator Johnson. Okay. Well, maybe he, we will come back to him. I understand that uh, Senator Paul is with us virtually. Senator Paul. Okay. Then let us go to Senator Rounds, who I understand is with us virtually. Yes, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Senator Rounds is recognized. Thank you. And I I would just like to take this opportunity to thank both of our panelists today for their service to our country. And thank you very much for your expert testimony today as well. Uh, I think the most recent conversations uh, that that have been going on here, I think, are are getting to the heart of something that we should discuss in more detail. With regards to those countries who we would love to have join the uh, the, the group of democracies around the world. They look at the United States as someone, an organization that they would love to have as, as an ally, as a friend, uh, as, a, as a partner in business and working uh, in, in humanitarian efforts as well. And yet, in many cases, we're seen as coming in as a big brother uh, and basically looking at them saying, we're gonna tell you how you ought to do business. We're going to tell you how you should change things in your own country. Uh, at the same time, you have both Russia and China, uh, as you've indicated, uh, both looking at our very open society and the way that we not only are self-critical, uh, which is appropriate, where we try to make ourselves a more perfect union, uh, they see it as saying that we're not perfect and we shouldn't be criticizing those who we are suggesting that we know better than. And yet at the same time, while both Russia and China are more than willing to criticize us and to point that out to the individual organizations or or countries or leaders in countries that we're not perfect, they also come in with a huge toolkit. And I wanted to explore that just a, a little bit more. How do we as a nation not only come in to say, look, we think there's a better way, and we think it's more appropriate to to exercise uh, a a government which is democratic in nature. And at the same time, though, say that we want to be your business partner. What are we missing in the tool bag? Both of you have kind of spoken to the fact that that tool bag is so critical. Could you take just a few minutes and share with us what you think are the items in the tool bags that either need to be improved upon or that need to be added? Uh, May I start? Um, um, I do think that one of the things that um, we have made a point of with NDI is not to go around just saying it's the American way or no other way. I do think that it's important uh, to work with other democratic countries to talk about that there's no one exact model, uh, but that it is really the role of the people and civil society and the rule of law but not, you can't impose democracy, that's an oxymoron. What you can do 
is be supportive of various things in the countries that are going in that direction, but also make clear that it isn't just American democracy. I think that's an important part. I also do think, and I think this more and more, is that we need to have a different relationship with the private sector, the NGOs and civil society, clearly, um, and then uh, educational institutions, but also businesses. Uh, because, uh, as I said earlier, the economies in those countries have to be assisted because people want to vote and eat. Uh, and there has to be a way that the private sector is brought in very early, not at the end, in order to figure out how to help improve those societies so that that economic uh, disparity is uh, disappears and that there's an equal opportunity and that it doesn't give the opportunity for authoritarian um, that are trying to do something else uh, to um, exacerbate those divisions. But I think we need to look more specifically at how to uh, improve the toolbox, sharpen it. It isn't as if we don't have the tools. We just aren't using them, I think, in a very clever way. I agree with everything that the secretary had said. I would say, Senator, that in some democracy, you cannot just pick it up and transplant a model onto the soil of another country. It doesn't work. So what's crucial in terms of a strategic approach, you have to work with the grassroots. You have to be guided by what is happening on the ground, and every country is different in that regard. I think the Secretary is absolutely right in highlighting the private sector, working with businesses, and I'd only add one piece to that. And that is something that both uh, NDI and IRI and the entire NED family has done. And that is that it's not just the United States reaching out, but actually we co-partner. We do projects with Australians. Uh, let's take Burma. In the case of Burma, working with the French and working with the Australians. Um, that kind of partnership also, I think, adds strength uh, to the advancement of democracy. It's not unilateral. I think sometimes one of the best toolbox or tools that we have in the toolbox is the relationship that we have with other allies when we join together to help. And I can't tell whether I have any time left or not, but Mr. Chairman, I will yield back if I do. Thank you. Thank you. The, the, the Senator is just right about on the button. Thank you very much. Uh, Senator Kane, who's been waiting patiently and chairs the subcommittee on one of the most important uh, parts of the world where this question is very prevalent in the Western Hemisphere. Th thank you, Mr. Chair, and what great witnesses. So uh, just looking at the news this morning before I came, I saw two interesting announcements that um, exemplify the topic. The first was an announcement by the Quad, U.S., India, Australia, Japan, that they're going to join together to accelerate uh, the development of vaccines in India to use in India and other countries in Southeast Asia, democracies in the region working together for something good. The second was an announcement by China and Russia that they're joining together to explore building a lunar um, uh, space base together on the moon. Um, so the cooperation between authoritarian adversaries that have traditionally been pretty skeptical of each other. This is high-stakes stuff right now. Um, the question that I want to ask, uh, Senator Romney asked, why aren't we being more successful? And Madam Ambassador, you said complacency. I think there's another C word that I, I want to make sure we get right, and that's consistency. Um, you know, I think if you look at the history of democracy promotion initiatives in the United States, you often run into some consistency challenges. Um, in this hemisphere, uh, the U.S. helped topple the Guatemalan left-leaning democratically elected government in 1954, Chilean left-leaning democratically elected governor, government in 1973, 
but there's been sort of a tradition of tolerating the strong men on the right side, dictators under the, he's an SOB, but RSOB, apocryphal language that's been used about the Samosas or about the Trujillos. Um, even more recently, uh, the OAS that we want to strengthen to perform in the hemisphere um, did courageous work in, uh, in calling out Venezuela, uh, and we used that uh, courageous work of the OAS to, to, to help assemble other nations that would pressure Venezuela. But when the OAS called out irregularities in the Honduran elections in 2017 and said the election should be rerun, the United States just went ahead and recognized the Honduran president anyway, and that president is now the subject of a massive uh, drug prosecution that's going on in New York as we speak. Uh, for helping potentially foment drug importation into the United States. So I think sometimes when countries around the world look at us, they wonder, are we being consistent about promoting democracy? A critique of the Cold War, for example, was President Truman announced the Truman Doctrine to protect democracies against authoritarians, but over time it sort of devolved into check the Soviet Union, and we didn't even mind authoritarians as long as they were not pro-Soviet Union. So the question is, for both of you, how important is it if we're going to promote democracy that we do it consistently and call out abuses, whether they're by left-leaning governments or, or right-wing governments? Um, Senator, um, you have asked, I think, or made a point that is one of the most difficult ones. Um, I teach, and I teach about um, decision-making in the United States and foreign policy. And one of the hardest issues is uh, consistency uh, because we are inconsistent. And there are times that I have to admit that sometimes we have to be um, inconsistent because we can't just cut off relations with a particular country. Uh, and so I do think this is the hardest question. I do think that what we need to do, however, is always call out the kinds of aspects that you have raised, uh, which may not necessarily lead to us cutting off relationships with that country, uh, but that we need to at least make clear to uh, the people within that country that we think that what has happened uh, is inconsistent with the kinds of policies of developing democracy and helping them. But I do think the hardest question uh, is whether we are, have a consistent policy and we do not, and I think in some cases we cannot, but I think that this all bears more examination because it is truly difficult. Uh, I have not believed that it is correct not to have diplomatic relations with a country because we need to know what is going on in that particular country for our own benefit so that we know what our policy should be. Madam Ambassador, thank you. I I will only add uh, uh, to uh, your point, uh, first, uh, consistency does matter, and you're quite right in saying, and I know this because as I served as undersecretary and then when I was in the Human Rights Bureau at the State Department, many countries would come forward and would say, well, that's not what the last administration did or the administration before that that uh, from administration to administration, there's a change of policy, a change of approach. So consistency does, in fact, matter. I do think that one thing we have been very consistent on, at least as I see it, is that these values matter. They matter. They are part of what we are about. 
when I look at the immigration challenge that is before us, China and Russia are not facing an immigration challenge. People want to come to this country, whether we're consistent or inconsistent, and for all the flaws that we may have, because they know that uh, we have institutions where they can have transparency, a recourse for action if wronged, and economic opportunity and a better way of life. So I would put that as a silver lining in this mix, at least in terms of as we evolve and democracy is not a linear path. But let me add one more, and that is, I think also in this question, the public-private component also matters. It's not just about the U.S. government, but it is also about the work and the involvement of our private sector and what our private sector does in keeping our feet to the fire. And being here in, uh, certainly here in the Senate, um, that's reminding us what the American people are about. And I, I'll end on this note. I have to say I'm a strong proponent of the Quad, and I'm really glad that you made that point. Uh, I think the Quad is a very important um, uh, uh, organization that has been key in terms of uh, challenging China. Uh, and it's something that also matters in terms of uh, uh, democracy and the proponent, the advancement of uh, democratic uh, uh, values. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Mr. Chair. What a great hearing. I have a million more questions, but my time is up. I understand the feeling. Uh, let me uh, turn. I understand that Senator Haggerty is with us uh, virtually. Senator Haggerty? I'm sure some of these members may have had to go to another hearing. All right. Uh, I don't know of... Uh, any other member on the Republican side who is on virtually? If there is, please speak up and we'll recognize you. And if not, then we'll go to uh, Senator Booker, who I understand is with us virtually. Senator Booker? If not, I'll turn to Senator Schatz, who I understand is with us virtually. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to uh, both of our testifiers. I want to talk a little bit about our public diplomacy uh, uh, efforts. Um, the U.S. Agency for Global Media does great work through programs uh, like Voice of America and Radio Free Asia, but uh, we know that more people today get their information online. And so I'm wondering, uh, Secretary Albright, how you're thinking about how we should do public diplomacy in the information age, I know that you've uh, made reference to the fact that, you know, these are tools of democratization, but they're also tools for autocrats. And how should the State Department in particular uh, think about modernizing the tools? Uh, radio is important, but it's not the main uh, communications channel for most people around the globe. Uh, thank you, Senator Schatz. I think, again, this is a very difficult question because uh, we have not totally mastered how we deal with the new um, information tools at all, frankly, um, and that there are differences in the way that the law looks at uh, whether we have any, uh, what the control is over the big tech companies that um, actually uh, not only produce, but, but send on information. We also have great differences with our allies in terms of the whole rule of, of privacy and a variety of different issues. I, I'm going to, I have to tell you, I think um, what I did uh, was create a group of former foreign ministers, and we have just had a meeting on this virtually, trying to sort out 
how, uh, from these are foreign ministers from all over the world, how in fact we are going to be dealing with this because this is not just an American problem. Uh, and, and I do think that it has an awful lot, again, to do both um, uh, Ambassador Dobryansky and I have talked about the private sector, but this is one place where there needs to be better uh, cooperation and collaboration with the private sector and trying to develop some rules of the game. Uh, I have been very, uh, my whole interest when I was a real academic was in the role of information in political change. And I can't tell you how important Radio Free Europe and Voice of America were in the post-communist world um, and how people got their information and public diplomacy itself. But the questions recently about how they're the tools are being used are right up there in terms of trying to figure out the rules of the game. And I do think this is somewhere where Congress and the executive branch and the private sector really need to look at what the elements are and how to develop some kind of acceptable rules of the game on it, because it's like a, the, uh, the Wild West at the moment. It sure is. And I would just offer the to the extent that you've given us guidance to think through uh, 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 our public diplomacy and our projection of, of democratic values uh, abroad depends on us setting an example. Uh, I think we need to be cautious when we consider changes to the law or an interpretation of the law as it relates to social media platforms as satisfying as those might be uh, and think about how an authoritarian uh, might use a certain fact pattern uh, to shut down dissent. So I think it's it's uh, this stuff is really complex and we need to understand some of our tech policy as a foreign policy question uh, and not just uh, for other committees. Uh, uh, Secretary, I'd like to ask you uh, about the National Endowment for Democracy and its affiliated groups. Uh, obviously, you're uh, the leader in NDI. Um, how does NDI actually interact with the State Department? And for, in particular, can you talk about the success that you've had uh, in election monitoring uh, work? Well, first of all, uh, we are funded par partially by the U.S. government and USAID and various other parts. We have very good relationships with the State Department. Uh, but I really do think that one of the things that we have to think about is how we operate um, in terms of explaining more what we are doing to people um, in this country and abroad and the extent to which we are able through NDI and IRI and the endowment to kind of talk about the value systems and how we operate. I do think uh, it was, uh, you know, elections are necessary, but not sufficient. But I really do think that when we have ways that uh, we monitor the elections and are able to say whether they are right or wrong, when we also are able to have uh, representatives from the State Department and frankly, members of Congress go to the various countries to explain how our system works rather than having it be uh, something that's just in a book. I think that relationship is very important. Um, and I hope that when we can actually travel again more, that more members of Congress will go um, and visit these countries. And if I might just tag on to that, there are foreigners that come to the United States and the ambassadors. And I wish that more members of Congress would have uh, uh, real conversations in terms of the kinds of ways that our democracy works. I think it's very important to use all the branches of our government. My final question for you, uh, Secretary, is, and this is, uh, I think Chris Coons is gonna love this one, uh, is about the size of our foreign service. Um, we have been the largest foreign service 
uh, on the planet. That's been a point of pride, um, not just as a statistical uh, matter, but because it means that we're projecting our power uh, all around the world. I'm wondering if you could comment on the importance of funding the Foreign Service uh, in terms of democracy promotion for, for the, the chairman of the subcommittee on, on uh, state and foreign ops. Um, there is no question uh, that the Foreign Service, the State Department, is, is essential in going out abroad and explaining what this country is about. Um, the State Department, I was very proud to be asked to head it, very proud of the people who worked there. And, and I think that we don't recognize enough what a hard job it is. Uh, it, it, you know, people think of the Foreign Service as people that get dressed up and go to receptions. It is one of the more difficult jobs in the government. Uh, we now have to do training for our diplomats uh, when they go abroad in terms of dealing with uh, uh, terrorist situations and difficulties. Um, and we don't have enough people. And partially, uh, what I find, I do believe in a strong military, but I have to say the difference in the budget, what get the Pentagon gets, which is somewhere around $700 billion, in comparison to what the State Department gets, which is anytime is somewhere between 40 and $50 billion, which not only has to uh, pay the diplomats, but have uh, buildings that they can operate in, the security, and then obviously the programs, which are the most important part. So our very important tool of talking about our values and being the eyes and ears of the U.S. government is being underfunded. And so uh, I am grateful that you asked that because I really felt when I was there that we were not, in fact, understood well enough in terms of how we project America's national security issues and values. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think that would be classified as a leading question if you were in a courtroom. But in any event, Senator Coons <laughs> has taken copious notes. Uh, I understand Senator Van Hollen is with us virtually. Senator Van Hollen. I want to thank both our uh, terrific witnesses uh, for being with us. Uh, this morning and really pick up on the threads of some of the other questions uh, that have been made. But the Biden administration uh, has been talking more and more about looking at the frame of techno democracies versus techno autocracies, uh, putting really China front and center, uh, a country which, of course, uh, through its Belt and Road Initiative and other initiatives uh, is seeking not only to export um, its technology, whether it be Huawei or other forms of uh, cutting edge technology, but also in the process, uh, export its model um, and including the surveillance state, uh, which uh, may be very attractive to um, authoritarian governments uh, that want to uh, have both control over their citizens and also prevent uh, active uh, dissent. Uh, but my question really gets to what Senator Kane was getting at. As we, as we pursue that model, uh, and I'm interested in how useful you think that overall model is, um, how do we also look at consistency uh, across the board? Uh, Secretary Albright, you mentioned Hungary. Uh, if you look at uh, Turkey, they've also, uh, for example, shut down uh, access to the internet and social media over time right now. Um, in, in India, uh, the Modi government um, permanently blocked over 500 accounts uh, of people who were dissenting uh, against the Modi government's um, uh, handling of the farmer protests and threatened to uh, lock up 
um, uh, Twitter and Facebook employees um, that didn't enforce uh, this this decision. In fact, uh, Twitter, uh, as a result, blocked 500 uh, accounts. So if you could just talk about how we how we deal with that in the context of this overall uh, framing, because I couldn't agree more with the comment that the quad, for example, is a really important uh, entity and we need to pursue that. So how do we pursue those interests and at the same time uh, try and apply some consistency to this issues like freedom of the Internet um, and and uh, dealing with governments that are are using their powers to clamp down on dissent by shutting down dissent on the Internet? Uh, I uh, really do want to answer that, but I don't want to uh, keep doing the kind of thing that we are thinking about is uh, criticizing what happened in the past. What has happened here, we did not pay attention to what was going on, there's no question, and kind of dismissed the fact of what the Chinese were doing. Uh, and we have been absent, and the Chinese are on a, uh, a march to prove their importance and are taking up the vacuum that we created. And we need to understand that without uh, just going back, but we do need to know that we haven't been consistent and we haven't been present. I also think that what needs to happen is, by the way, what I do when I teach, I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. So what are the tools? And my course is called the National Security Toolbox, and they're not a lot of tools. And what we do mostly is turn to the sanctions tool because it is one that you can have some immediate um, effect with if you find the people that are doing the various things that you disagree with. Uh, but it has to be watched very carefully um, and it has to be used in a way that is uh, more precise, I think, in the targeted tools. And, and I do think we need to do that. The Chinese are roaming freely because we have not been around. And I think that we need to also develop a policy uh, to go back on something, which is in terms of including the private sector, um, in terms of helping the countries that need help economically, not just through aid, but through the kinds of things that the private sector can do. And we need to see that there is space for us to operate on. I am troubled by my own answer on the consistency because I would like to see consistency, but it is hard. Uh, and I think that we need to recognize that in some cases it's not doable, but I do think also that we need to work with our partners whether it's the Quad or various other alliance structures. I, I note that, for instance, uh, uh, Secretary uh, Blinken is going to go to talk to the Japanese and the South Koreans about the things that can be done more together, that the alliance structure, these are alliances of democracies, and therefore we should be able to figure out how we can deal with some of the issues that we've been talking about that do have to do with consistency and do have to do with the fact that we have been absent. Thank you. Thank you. Ambassador Dobryansky, since this is the last question, we'll let you also uh, share your views. All right, thank you. Uh, Senator, I, I think you raised an uh, important uh, points. Uh, consistency, I think we have established is uh, a challenge. It is a challenge for all the obvious reasons. But let me, let me add here, uh, China is definitively waging a disinformation campaign. There are cyber intrusions, as we know. 
and also with their substantial economic, financial, and technological leverage, one of the biggest challenges is that other countries that engage massively in trade and finance with China are also constrained. They're very constrained in their actions. So it's not only the issue of our trying to engage, combat others, counter influence operations in social media and expose them for what they are, but also there's the challenge of the fact that many countries are engaged by the nature of their relationships, and then they're not willing to actually step forward and join us in this battle. So that's something that I think is even, if I could say, uh, not only the issue of consistency, but we have a real challenge here uh, to look at and whatever continent it is. I think back, and I'll end on this note, Europe uh, went ahead in December with the European investment agreement with China. And this was even before the Biden administration came in and said, let's collaborate on our approach to China. That already sets a type of foundation that's very hard to undo or even a workaround. So consistency matters, complacency matters, but also I think that we need to really look at our toolkit technologically. The issue of digitalization authoritarianism is front and center Thank for you. sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, seeing no other member present, unless there is some member who is with us virtually, who we haven't called upon. And if there is, please speak up. Hearing none, with the committee's thanks to both of you, Madam Secretary, Madam Ambassador, thank you so much for your insights. Uh, we, we appreciate it. This is a, a critical question, uh, especially at the beginning of a new administration, but certainly for the Senate to consider in its deliberations, and you've greatly helped us along the way. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you very much. We thank have you. a second panel, which I now want to introduce and bring up. Let me first welcome Dr. Peter Beer Ajak. Dr. Ajak is a civil society leader, political dissident, and scholar from South Sudan, an outspoken advocate for free elections. Dr. Ajak was convicted of disturbing the peace and jailed for 18 months in a South Sudanese prison. Let me welcome Dr. Aja. Uh, I'd, I'd next like to introduce Dr. Mr. Nathan Law. In 2017, at the age of 23, Mr. Law was elected to Hong Kong's Legislative Council and became the youngest legislative counselor in history. Yet his election was overturned in July of 2017 following Beijing's constitutional reinterpretation. So let me welcome Mr. Law. And finally, let me welcome uh, Wei Nin Pinthon. She is a Burmese uh, human rights defender working with a non-governmental organization, Burma Campaign UK and Advance Myanmar. Welcome, uh, Wei Nin. Uh, with that, uh, your full statements will be included in the record. We ask you to summarize them in about five minutes. And let me start with Dr. Ajak. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rich, members of the committee, I'm honored to testify today on a topic so close to my heart. For 18 months, I endured a brutal illegal detention at the Blue House Prison, operated by South Sudan National Security Service. My crime was criticized in President Salva Kiir's failed leadership of South Sudan, which has turned the promise of our hard-won independence into a decade-long nightmare. 
I survived this imprisonment and Kier's later attempt to either kill or abduct me from Kenya because of the support of many human rights defenders, including several members of this committee. I'm grateful to you all and the U.S. government for saving my life and that of my family. When South Sudan gained independence in 2011, Kier was appointed, not elected, appointed president and charged with building institutions to allow for elections in 2015. But in 2013, he and former Vice President Riek Machar plunged our new nation into a civil war. Kir used the conflict to defer elections from 2015 to 2018 and again to 2021. Although the current peace agreement requires election be held by March 2022, it's already proposing 2023 and beyond. Meanwhile, he has built a repressive security state in the form of the National Security Service run by General Akolkur Kuch, who personally oversees the planning and the commission of gross human rights violations through his special forces in his office. A four-person task force uh, in Kuch's office identifies targets for extrajudicial killing, enforced disappearance, and arbitrary arrests. Kuch also manages numerous corrupt schemes, illegally extracting millions of dollars through public sector corruption. Kier's failure leadership has been devastating. Poverty rate, which stood at 50% at independence, is now at 82%. We ranked dead last in the 2020 Social Progress Index, tied for the last place with Somalia in the 2020 <coughs> Corruption Perception Index, and scored only two out of 100 in the 2021 Freedom House Global Freedom Score. Our people are living in unrelenting horror. The United States needs to send a clear message to Kier that his repression of our people will no longer be tolerated, nor any further delay of elections. They should sanction perpetrators of gross human rights violations like Kuch while urging the African Union to urgently set up the hybrid court on South Sudan to end impunity. If Kier doesn't hold election on time, his already illegitimate regime will have expired. Since he was never elected by our people, this would necessitate a new political paradigm to ensure a successful uh, transition to democracy. Despite severe repression, our people made it clear in the recently concluded national dialogue that Kier and Machar must exit the political scene. I hope the United States, this committee, will stand with our people. South Sudan case highlights five challenges to democracy, not only in Horn of Africa, uh, but on the entire continent and globally. One, restriction of press freedom by dictators who know that information is power and who fear informed citizenry and act to keep our people ignorant of their misery. Two, severe repression of political opposition and activists by tyrants who fear losing power Lacking the ability to compete in free exchange of ideas, the result of violence, intimidation, and harassment. Through Department of State, the U.S. should publicly identify and monitor the cases of bellwether activists and act swiftly and decisively when they face repression. If we are killed or detained with impunity, then who will fight for freedom in our countries? Three, entrenched leaders who abuse term limits and whom the U.S. must confront to reverse course. Four, Chinese promotion of authoritarianism through anti-democratic tactics, financial coercion, and physical intimidation. The U.S. need to counter China by supporting exchange programs and expanding access to U.S. institutions of knowledge. The U.S. also need to encourage its private sector to expand investment in Africa, where Chinese capital is not only entrenching authoritarianism, but weakening instruments of accountability. Finally, sham elections that damper faith in democracy, making mockery of the sacred instrument through which the sovereign will of the people is expressed. 
In closing, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, the human desire for freedom and opportunity gives me hope that with right policies and resolve, not only will dictatorship fail, but freedom will thrive. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you very much, Dr. Arjak. Uh, Mr. Law. Mr. Law, are you with us virtually? Okay, well, while we figure that out, let me turn to Ms. Wayne-In. Ms. Wayne-In. Uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, so when the head of the Burmese military, Mayan Line, staged the coup, he knew there was a price to pay but of course he is expecting that he can get away with it. So it's very important for us to prove him wrong. In Burma, people are very brave and they are proving me online that he is wrong. When the military decided and he, when they thought to arrest NLD leaders and other activists like my dad, they thought they could stop protest. But we have seen the biggest protest in more than 30 years. People are holding signs calling for democracy. And these signs are written in English because they want the world to help. But peaceful protests have been met with increased violence by the military. People are dying on the street every day and children have been shot in the head. The military is using every tools they have to silence people from speaking out. More than 60 people now have been killed for peacefully protesting. And we now have more than 2000 people in prison since the coup started, and we don't know how many people have disappeared. And we haven't been told where they are being detained or their condition, and they don't have any access to lawyers. Today is my father's birthday. Nearly half my life, uh, we haven't been able to celebrate his birthday together because he is in prison for speaking out. And my first memory of seeing my dad is through iron bars in insane prison. It's still very hard for me, although I'm used to it. And at the same time, I'm heartbroken and angry that so many children will now have to go through what I went through, growing up without a parent and not knowing when they will see the parents again. And this has to stop. It's not just in the cities and against peaceful protesters that military is attacking civilians. In Karen state, the military is firing mortar bombs into villages and more than 5,000 villagers are already hiding in the jungle. We see military trucks and soldiers on the streets of Yangon and other cities, but they never left the streets in many ethnic states. In the past 10 years of reform process, human rights violations against ethnic minorities have increased. The military saw sanctions relax even as they were continue carrying on uh, human rights violations against ethnic minorities. This created a sense of impunity for the military. They even thought they could get away with the genocide against the Rohingya, and so far they have. And of course, they, can, they think they can get away with the stage in the coup now because they were allowed to get away with genocide. People in Burma want the coup reverse and they want the democratically elected government to be reinstated, but they don't want to go back under the military drafters 2008 constitution. In the US, you wouldn't accept a situation 
where your chair of the Joint Chief of Staff choose three cabinet members. You wouldn't accept him choosing 25% of the member of Congress. You wouldn't accept it, and we can't either. People are risking their lives asking for federal democracy. And the military was wrong to underestimate the courage and resi resistance by the people of Burma. But so far, May Line hasn't been wrong to think the international response would be weak. My country is now controlled by the battle-hardened soldiers. They are not diplomats. Statements alone are not enough. Of course, we are realistic, and we know that international action can alone cannot free our country. We will win our own freedom, but international action has an important role to play. I want to take this moment to thank the US for being the first to act against the coup, freezing government reserves and sanctioning three military companies. You have been the forefront of supporting human rights and democracy in my country, and I'm really grateful for that. There is much more US can and must do. You must target the economic interests of all the military and impose sanctions on military companies, including financial services and insurance. Now that military control the government, revenues to them from oil and gas need to be stopped, along with trade in timber and jams from Burma. Please work with allies like the UK and EU to coordinate these targeted sanctions. And US has arms embargo, but most countries in the world don't. Please work with allies to build a global coalition of countries imposing arms embargo. In my written statement, I have listed more steps that can be taken. There are many measures that US can take, diplomatic, economic, humanitarian, and legal. In my country, people are going out on the street every single day protesting, knowing that they could be shot anytime, they could be arrested anytime, and they could be beaten anytime. They are risking their lives and they're doing everything they can. And we are asking, please, every tools you have and everything you can to help us. Thank you. Thank you. I understand that Mr. Law is trying to connect with us. Mr. Law, are you with us yet? Well, I hope it's not the Chinese government uh, seeking to interfere Mr. Law's testimony from Hong Kong. Uh, well, let me turn to uh, a round of questions. If we are able to connect, we will certainly intercede his uh, his testimony at that time. Um, let me turn to the uh, ranking member for any questions or comments. Well, thank you. Um, Ms. Uh, Wayne in uh, your, your testimony was, uh, was very good, particularly as far as details are concerned, and that's what, what we always hunger for is, uh, is details uh, on top of the generalities that we know. But uh, tell me this, the, the things that we have done, uh, what, what, is your, uh, what is your idea of how this is going to end? I mean, the, the, uh, the military takeover uh, by the people who are in charge of that have, have shown that uh, uh, over many years that they, uh, that they can uh, uh, survive through a lot of pressure. What, how do you see this thing ending? What, what's, your, what, what, what's your thought on that? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator. It's a very good question. So um, the military is not immune to pressure. The military is not immune to the uh, you know, international pressure. So, so far, it's been over a month 
since the coup started. And every day we have seen the situation getting worse and worse. It's not just the cracking down on peaceful protester anymore, it's pure killing in some parts of the country. And what we've seen from the international community is mostly statements of condemnation. And what we want them to do, and especially United States, is very powerful. And you can use with your allies to, like I stated before, um, sanctions on military companies. They care about their pockets. They care about pressure. Of course, these will not work um, straight away, but this, this will send a very strong message to the military that they need to respect human rights and they need to stop violating human rights on the ground. Well, th thank you. I, I appreciate those uh, observations. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I understand that Senator Cardin is with us virtually. Senator Cardin? Testing, testing. <laughs> testing. Is, is that Mr. Law? Yes, yes. I'm so sorry, Chairman. I don't know why there are, te uh, there are problems. Uh, maybe it's from my end, um, technical problems. Okay, so we'll, we'll recognize I you now. Your full statement will be in the record, and uh, if you can summarize your remarks. I read your statement as excellence. Go ahead. Great. Um, thank you so much, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rich, and the other dis distinguishing members of the committee. It's really my honor to be able to testify in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The state of democracy around the world is grim. The 2020 Priorities of Democracy report found that 2020 was the first year since 2001 that there are more autocratic institutions than democratic ones in the world. The latest Freedom in the World 2021 report produced by Freedom House also recognized this worsening democracy decline. We all are in the 50th consecutive year of decline in the global freedom. What Hong Kong people have suffered from in the past few years are clear examples of it. 2018, the year that Hong Kong people uprose, the scenes of millions of people marching down the streets captured the eyeballs of every corner of the world. We chant for the promises made to us, democracy, autonomy, and freedom. Congressmen in the US vowed their support to the movement and passed several bills, including the historic Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. We were all grateful for the warm encouragement from around the world. Yet, starting from 2020, we have witnessed repeated crackdowns from the Chinese Communist Party Assemblies have been banned, police brutality has emerged with impunity, and Beijing has circumvented all our local legislation and consultation process to impose the notorious national security law. Under the law, the government can prosecute anyone who chants a protest slogan, display a liberate Hong Kong flag, or even participate in a primary. The national security law is a convenient legal tool to silence the, the pro-democracy pro camp and strip away our basic rights. Last week was particularly devastating. The government has thrown 47 prominent activists in jail because they planned to exercise their constitutional rights to run for office and veto the government's bills. Beijing has also announced an electoral reform in Hong Kong that turns the city's legislative council into a National People's Congress-style rubber stamp chamber. With the democratic candidates likely barred, Beijing's appointees will occupy more than half of the seats 
without an open election. The election in Hong Kong has become selection. The erosion of freedom in Hong Kong reflects the world Beijing wants to craft. Beijing is expanding its autocratic influence and denounces democratic values on a global scale. It tacitly stands behind the military junta in Myanmar by opposing actions from the UN Human Rights Council and justifying the coup as a major cabinet reshuffle. Hereby, I want to veil my support to the protesters in Myanmar because they have been through the toughest and bloodiest week in their anti-coup protest, where dozens of citizens were killed by the soldiers' firearms. People died under the hands of tyrannies. The casualties and disastrous consequences incurred by dictators are no less than climate emergencies or public health crises. Yet, the international community seems very reluctant to tackle it with coordinated actions. This latency has to be changed. We have to rise and defend global democracy. The fight starts with formulating global goals, visions, agendas, and actions. It can only be accomplished by democratic countries working together to avoid being divided and conquered by China. Here is the concrete direction that can fundamentally change the trend of democracy decline. In the upcoming Democracy Summit, important democracies, including the G7s, European countries, and other democracies should come together with a preliminary formulation of an alliance for safeguarding democracy worldwide. The goal is straightforward. In the next five years, as long as we strive for 1% improvement annually in the Global Liberal Democracy Index, measured by the renowned varieties of democracy projects, we can reverse the declining state of democracy worldwide by 2026 and rise back to the level around 2012, the highest democracy index human society have ever experienced. It's a measurable and essential goal if we are determined enough to fight the rise of authoritarianism. Reversing the trend of global democracy decline is the mission of our era. Combating the rise of authoritarianism led by China and supporting Hong Kong's democratic movement is an important step to this mission. Hong Kong people will never give up and we will fight for democracy as we say. Thank you so much. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, let me turn to, I understand we have a list of names here that may be online. Senator Booker. Senator Markey. Okay. Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, and thank you um, to the uh, folks who've testified um, for your courage, for your determination, for your passion to fight for democracy. Um, it is uh, your sacrifice uh, that encourages uh, those of us here who are looking at how best uh, to revive and sustain and advance our democracy in the United States. Um, Peter, um, thank you um, for being with us in person. It's wonderful to see you here um, safely um, and in Washington. Uh, as a prominent civil society leader in South Sudan, as someone who's endured uh, imprisonment, I'd be interested in hearing from you what you think this committee can best do to support uh, the cultivation of democracy and peace in South Sudan, and what you can share with us about democratic trends more broadly across the continent, and what you see as the greatest threats to civil society in South Sudan and across the continent. 
Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Kuhns, uh, for your questions, and thank you for your support. Uh, one of the things that I remember very well from the prison was uh, being briefed by the letter that you and Senator Booker wrote in uh, demanding for my release. And it, it was, uh, I was in nice solitary confinement at the time and was told that uh, senators are speaking on your behalf and you have to find a way to keep them quiet, which was a crazy request uh, given that uh, I was in solitary confinement. Uh, people of South Sudan are yearning for democracy. This is the reason why we sacrificed for more than two decades uh, fighting a civil war and uh, uh, fighting for our own independent state. But as you know, we have never voted. I'm 37 years old, and I have never voted in my entire life. And that is because our president keep on postponing elections. Every time elections come up, he keeps postponing them. So one thing that this committee can do is to stress the importance of the elections that are scheduled for next year to take place on time and not be delayed again. Uh, this would require, of course, uh, getting the, U, uh, the UN, uh, especially the UN mission in South Sudan, on board uh, to, to review its mandate so that elections are part of its mandate. It requires possibly looking at uh, appointing a high-level UN envoy that can shepherd uh, uh, the country toward the conduct of this election. Uh, it also requires supporting the civil society, doing exactly as what you did before, speaking out on behalf of activists. As I speak with you, there are over 1,000 people detained in secret uh, uh, national security facilities across the country. Uh, so your voice matter, and it, 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 it sent a message to Kier that he's being watched and that he will be held accountable. Also urging the African Union to set up the hybrid court so that there is accountability for atrocities that have been committed in, in the country. But going beyond, the region, the, the whole Horn of Africa is in crisis. The, what is happening in Tigray is, is shocking, and it, it requires U.S. to speak out forcefully. Also recently, as we have seen in Uganda, Elections are being held, but they are sham elections because uh, these dictators are the one monitoring elections and at the same time the one counting the votes. So in the end, they counted for themselves. So U.S. leadership in the region is critical because, as mentioned in the previous panel, U.S. have been absent in the last few years and have allowed these authoritarian countries uh, to take over, especially China. It requires really countering China. Thank you very much, Peter. And it's, um, I think, our intention... Um, in this committee and elsewhere, uh, to re-engage and re-engage actively in the Horn of Africa as well as um, throughout the rest of the world. Uh, if I might uh, ask one more question, Mr. Chairman, um, just um, of Wayne Nin uh, and Nathan, um, thank you both uh, for your courage. Um, and I understand that despite social media restrictions, Internet blackouts, um, a critical means of organizing in the face of a coup and a crackdown um, has been access to social media. Um, if you could each speak to the importance of a free and open Internet and to social media, um, to democracy uh, and to activism in Hong Kong and in Burma, uh, I would welcome that. Here in the United States, we have a very polarized uh, social media landscape um, that has led um, to some disinformation campaigns. And in our Congress, we will be debating how best to balance um, protecting free speech online uh, and regulations to prevent uh, disinformation. So if you could, um, in turn, Huynh uh, and Nathan, just briefly speak to that question. Thank you. 
I, uh, for social media, it's very good for us because uh, compared to 2007 and in the past uprising, we are seeing the live footages of people on the street protesting. And now they are shutting down internet from uh, 1 a.m. until uh, 6.30 a.m. now. So we are worried what will happen because the military is doing nightly raids and people can't report it on social media about the human rights uh, violations happening on the ground. So. We are very grateful that we have uh, live information coming out from the country and also it gives uh, more evidence to the international community that they need to act now. But of course, the military is also using the social media platform to uh, spread uh, false information as well. But uh, uh, on a greater level, uh, we appreciate uh, having the internet and we need that uh, nightly internet cut to be stopped so that you know it, um, human rights violations can stop uh, happening during the night as well. Thank you. Thank you for the question, Senator. Um, first of all, Hong Kong people can still access to uh, Facebook and Twitter, this uh, social media platform. But um, when they speak about uh, the situation of Hong Kong or urging the international community to hold China accountable, they could uh, be seen as breaching the national security law. So it really adds up and uh, spread a white terror for them, making them afraid of expressing their genuine opinion online. Furthermore, China has been deploying its misinformation overseas and also a lot of information warfare are conducting. So I have always been urging countries working with social media companies to really monitor and curb this misinformation campaign led by state, state actors and uh, to really safeguard democracy by um, stopping these infiltration to our system and uphold the values of a democratic, uh, a democratic society. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, a vote is now underway, so I will just ask if there's any member who is on virtually who has not had an opportunity, if you would uh, identify yourself. For, I, I, let me start off. I understand maybe Senator Haggerty is with us. Okay. I understand maybe Senator Markey is with us. Senator Markey, Senator Haggerty. Is anyone out there? Uh, Mr. Chairman, this is uh, Senator Van Hollen. How are you? I don't know uh, if the others are here or not. Ha having not heard from either one of them, uh, I will turn to you, Senator Van Hollen. Thank, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank all three of uh, our witnesses uh, today for their, their powerful testimony and their courageous actions uh, in support of uh, freedom and democracy. Um, Mr. Law, I have a question for you because uh, I joined with Senator Toomey and last year we passed the Hong Kong Accountability Act, uh, which uh, provided additional authorities for the President of the United States uh, to uh, sanction um, officials uh, responsible for the crackdown and taking away uh, freedom uh, and democracy in Hong Kong. Uh, the prior administration uh, used that for some uh, targeted measures against individuals. Uh, I was pleased to see the, the Biden administration um, issue some sanctions uh, against uh, those in Russia uh, who've been uh, very instrumental in the crackdown on Navalny. Uh, and we're urging the Biden administration now to uh, take similar steps with respect to 
uh, the further crackdown on Hong Kong. As you said, uh, 47 um, democracy activists um, you know, have been uh, detained and threatened. Uh, the, the sanctions authority allows for sanctions not only against individuals, but also banks that bank those individuals, the, the banks that those individuals rely on. Um, do you think it would be productive if the Biden administration uh, both uh, imposed uh, further sanctions on individuals responsible uh, for the crackdown, uh, but also use that authority uh, to uh, sanction some of the banks uh, that, that they do business with? Thank you, Senator, for your questions. Um, the answer is a resounding yes. Uh, it's an important tool by using sanctions to have a deterrence effect on the individuals who are responsible for human rights violation. And in fact, it is uh, one of the very few tools that can really um, impose a deterrent effect on an indiv individual level. So I agree that uh, the list of uh, sanctions on Chinese and Hong Kong officials should be expanded. And on the other hand, uh, sanctions on cooperation, uh, which is colluding with uh, the Chinese Communist Party on human rights violations, is also important because sometimes uh, this business, um, they are using the name of non-political actors, but actually they are tactically helping uh, the Chinese Communist Party to promote its agenda and, uh, well, really taking advantage of our open and democratic values and system, um, but getting benefits from uh, autocracies. Uh, I, I think these kind of um, behaviors should be curbed and the business sector should be warned very carefully that they should not uh, be cooperating with the, the uh, Chinese Communist Party and other dictators. Otherwise, they will face consequence. I think uh, sanctioning them uh, release uh, such a clear message and it's much needed. Thank you. Right. That's the idea is that those you know, financial institutions that are enabling uh, those individuals also recognize uh, that uh, they, they could be penalized uh, through the sanctions. Let me just thank all, all of you, um, as the chairman said, a, a vote's on, and I see Senator Markey uh, is here. But thank all of you for your testimony. Thank you, Senator Van Halen. Is Senator Markey with us? Uh, thank you. Can you hear me, Mr. Chairman? I can hear you loud and clear. You're recognized for five minutes. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, uh, Ms. Uh, Pointon, uh, thank you for being here with us today, and I'm interested to hear how you think the United States can better support the Burmese of people in their push for democracy following the military coup. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Senator Maraki. And please uh, let me take this opportunity to thank you. Uh, I understand that you sponsored the uh, Burma's Political Prisoner um, Act as well. So this is the moment that you know um, we need that more than ever now because uh, there are growing numbers of political prisoners in the country, and we need to. Uh, continue. We need the U.S. to continue its support and aid from the NED and the government uh, to make a difference because we need more organizations on the ground to document human rights violations in the country. So that's one aspect of it. And also the other thing is, like I said, uh, sanctioned uh, military companies and targeted sanctions is very important. Uh, we are asking for uh, U.S. to establish a global arms embargo uh, as well, global coalitions of countries to impose um, embargoes. So when you have that, the China vetoes at the uh, UN Security Council, you can make progress towards it, even with the China. So um, that's one action the US can take. 
And you have so many tools that you can use to help people in Burma. And please use those to help us. Yeah, we'll do. We're with you. We're going to have your back throughout this entire ordeal. We're going to come out on the other side of it, but we need the United States to exercise its historic uh, moral, political, economic uh, leadership, and uh, we are going to do that. Uh, thank you for your great leadership. And Mr. Law, we have seen beautiful displays of solidarity between pro-democracy Hong Kongers and Burmese protesters over the past several weeks. It seems that these protesters are sharing information on how to manage the brutal assaults by authorities. Do you see any unique opportunities for the United States government or private industry to support these exchanges? Um, thank you so much, Senator, and also for your continuous support for Hong Kong's uh, democratic movement. Um, I think uh, for now, uh, we can form virtual community on social platform. We can form multi-alliance that share our information and consolidate our support to each other's uh, democratic struggles. So it has been uh, enhancing the ability of uh, uh, being of showing these protests to the world. And I think uh, the uh, democratic communities in the Western countries can also facilitate that exchange, increase the education on the threat of authoritarianism. And these uh, processes is crucial because perception um, changes actions. Uh, it really takes us to raise awareness on what's happening in Hong Kong and Myanmar in order for us to get grassroots support in the Western countries and also push forward to change. Uh, what we're facing is a global democracy decline, is a global democracy crisis. Uh, the Chinese government is tacitly backing the uh, Myanmar coup and, and this is a, a situation that we have to resolve uh, with coordinated actions. So I think uh, the, the Western democracies really take a huge role in here. And uh, we are expecting uh, consolidated efforts and organizations that could step, step up and to defend democracy. Thank you. And again, thank you for your leadership. Thank all of you for your leadership. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for uh, giving me this opportunity. I know the roll call is on, but I appreciate it. Thank you, Senator Markey. Um, one, uh, there is a vote going on, so we'll have to bring this hearing to a conclusion. But I do wanted to ask each of you in one minute, which I know is always difficult, but in one minute, tell me the one thing you would want the United States to do yes. as it relates to your specific country uh, that you think would make a difference. Doctor? Thank you, uh, Chairman, for that question. For me, the one specific thing that people of South Sudan need is to exercise the right to elect their own leaders. We have never had that right. And we struggle for so long. We have sacrificed so many people for us to get our country, and since doing that, we have never had a chance to vote. The elections are supposed to take place next year. We want the U.S. help so that those elections happen and we finally get to vote. Thank you. Mr. Law? Well, for now, we have to see the decline of democracy as a global crisis with global agendas, missions, actions. So I think the U.S. definitely could play the role of uh, consolidating the efforts around the world, forming alliance that aims at tackling the rights of authoritarianism and clearly positioning China as the greatest threat to our democracy and our rule-based international system. It requires a lot of cooperation and strength to do it. And I believe that uh, the Western democracies have to come together under um, the facilitation of the US and the other allies. Thank you, Ms. Weinin. Thank you very much. Uh, we want to see the Burma, the future of Burma, what we want to see is federal democracy with equal rights 
for every individual living in the country. And US has already been using diplomatic pressure and other pressure. So I would like to urge the United States to use other measures that you have, economic, humanitarian, legal, and also diplomatic, continued diplomatic pressure on the military to stop human rights violations and stop this coup and give people freedom and human rights and democracy that we deserve. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank all of you. You are the vivid uh, examples uh, of why democracy is so important and those willing to struggle for it in their respective countries. You give us all uh, a sense of inspiration. We salute uh, and recognize your individual sacrifices. Uh, and we thank you for sharing your stories uh, with us in the Senate and with the world. Uh, this record will remain open until the close of business tomorrow. With the thanks of the committee to all of our witnesses, uh, this hearing is adjourned.